You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you can be everywhere at the same time. And so it's with that idea we know that you can be here with us and we recognize your presence with us as we start this day's activity in this seminar. Please guide our minds, guide our hearts, guide my words, so that what we do and what we say will bring honor and glory to you and only you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I thought we'd start with a little uh, lighthearted uh, situation for you to kind of get your mind. Each day I'm going to show you one, and it'll get harder, okay? So if you're learning more, you'll be able to see more, right? We hope, he says, we hope. Okay, so here we go. This is the context, okay, with which, in which we're dealing with this issue of health and shalom. Yes, so now, ah, I tell you the technology. We're dealing with shalom and Jesus is coming back. So we should get involved in what he has asked us to do while we wait for his return. And this is something that he wants. He says he wants us to be where he is. Amen? So we are looking forward to being with him. And what he wants us to have was his original idea. He wants us to have everything that is good. He wants us to experience this shalom. So I have a few uh, kind of tidbit questions uh, to ask you. Did you know, did you know, that the way we live actually in, uh, affects how we will die. Did you know that? The way we live affects how we'll die. Now, you guys have heard of Annie Oakley? Yeah. Annie Oakley, yeah, the, the pistol carrying <laughs> Annie Oakley. Well, here's something that she didn't know, and it cost her her life. She didn't know anything about vitamin B12. But we know about vitamin B12 today. And we know that there are certain people who are prone to getting B, vitamin B12 deficiency. And some people knowingly put themselves in harm's way to get vitamin B12 deficiency by not taking a simple supplement of vitamin B12 and being a total vegetarian. See, if you're a total vegetarian, you don't get any vitamin B12 typically in your diet. And you have to get it from your diet. Therefore, if you are a total vegetarian, please... Don't be like Annie Oakley. B12 deficiency is found in the United States. 3.2% of the population have this issue if they're 50 years of age or older. And the reason is because physiologically, as we age, our stomachs produce less acid. And less acid also means we're producing less vitamin B12, and we can't activate the vitamin B12 to do what it's supposed to do for us. So we end up with a deficiency. People who are taking heartburn medications, we decrease the amount of acid and therefore we have a similar kind of effect. Also, people on a vegan diet and some vegetarian diets that are very abstemious, you know, they, they don't eat uh, much of anything, that also can cause a problem. Now, I'm not saying that these diets are bad, I'm saying that they can be problematic if you don't make the, you know, the required and the proper arrangements to have a balanced diet, okay? 
uh, people who have had weight loss surgery, they, they, some of the weight loss surgery bypasses the natural uh, conduit for the uh, production and absorption of vitamin B12, and therefore they can end up with vitamin B12 uh, uh, deficiency. Also, people with autoimmune gastrointestinal disease like, like, uh, like Crohn's disease, etc., they can end up with problems with B B12 deficiency, and they should be taking a supplement. The symptoms uh, oftentimes might be something as simple as balance. But, you know, as we get older, we, we kind of get a little bit unsteady on our feet, and we may think that that's just that it. You know, it's, it's just that we're getting a little bit older. Uh, we may become depressed, and they say that as you get older, you might become depressed. You know, you might lose loved ones. You might be the only one left standing, and, <laughs> and that loneliness may make you depressed. Fatigue, confusion, memory loss. You see, these, some of these things people say, this is what happens as you get older, but it's not because you're getting older. It's because you, you may not have vitamin B12. Numbness and tingling in the hands and feet, and of course, ultimately, something that we call pernicious anemia, and, uh, and death. And some of these changes are irreversible. So the best thing is to take care, understand that this is something that can happen, and take a supplement if you're a total vegetarian. Diabetes. In one study of 100,000 uh, people who were diabetes-free individuals, what they found was people who were eating these ultra-processed foods. You know what ultra-processed foods are? The things that come in these packets, uh, some of the crinkling packets and so on, right? things that are, are not really the natural foods. You don't have any of these growing on trees, for instance, okay? Um, yeah, they had a greater uh, incidence of developing type 2 diabetes. So ultra-processed foods increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. We'll talk more about diabetes a little bit later. People who eat whole plant foods, on the other hand, they had less problems in developing type 2 diabetes. So if you are diabetes prone, you have diabetes in your family, uh, making sure that you leave off that, um, uh, those ultra-processed foods and take something that is more wholesome, whole plant foods. How about this one? This one, uh, they were looking at how much weight loss we need to have to be able to get some of the benefits of losing weight. And in this particular study, they found that only 5% of your body weight loss will make a huge difference in terms of your health. Okay, 5%, which means if you take any, any, uh, anyway, somebody give me a number, give me a number, 240, let's suppose you're 240 pounds, 10% of 240 is 24, and you take half of that, so that's 12 pounds, you lose 12 pounds, and you get some of these benefits. How does that sound to you, right? It's not a lot, right? You, right? Now, I'm saying this, it doesn't mean that it's always easy to lose 12 pounds. Can I get an amen there, huh? All right, but... What I am saying is that it's not really a lot of weight loss that you need to have to be able to get these kinds of good effects. 5% of body weight loss leads to a cascade of various benefits, including reduced heartburn, reduced pain, especially knee pain for people who have osteoarthritis, reduced blood pressure, reduced glucose if you have diabetes, and people who don't have diabetes, it decreases their risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So 5% weight loss. How much did I say? 5%. Okay, so you get a high five. All right. Nuts and weight. Some people have an issue with nuts, and I think some of them are nuts. Okay. And the reason is because nuts don't seem to follow any of the patterns that we otherwise would have expected, scientifically speaking, because it seems as though the calories in nuts 
don't do the same thing as calories in other foods, and it certainly doesn't do the same thing as the calories in ultra-processed foods, okay? So, now it doesn't mean that we have open season on nuts and that we should go nuts ourselves, right? But what it means is that don't be afraid to have nuts. Be careful, though, if you're going to have the nuts that have been adulterated with, you know, lots of oil and a lot of salt and things like that, because those things can cause something good to become not so good, all right? They looked at um, 145,000 middle-aged people who had up to half a handful of nuts uh, a day. And lo and behold, what they found, that there was a 16% decreased risk of becoming obese. And you would say, but they're eating nuts, and nuts are supposed to be high fat, and da-da-da-da, right? No, it doesn't seem to, to do the same thing. It, it defies some of the other science uh, relating to this. I, I have an anecdote that I... I, I wasn't planning to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, when the, the first uh, study that was done by Joan Sabaté out in Loma Linda, looking at the effects of nuts and, on cholesterol and so on, he had a very difficult time getting this study published. Because all of the scientists who were reviewing that paper, they said, this guy must be nuts. In other words, we're not going to publish this. This goes against the science of the day. And finally, that first paper got published in Archives of Internal Medicine. And from there, all of the other large research groups, they looked at their own data and they found the same thing. Right? The same thing. God made nuts and seeds for us to consume and there, there's a lot of benefit by adding this uh, to our diets. Okay? Okay. And now, looking at disease-free years. Just a little tidbit. They looked at 111,000 individuals. We're looking at big numbers. Age 50, they were free of cancer, diabetes, and free of coronary heart disease, CHD. That's what that stands for. Or CVD, cardiovascular disease. So they were, they were otherwise healthy uh, individuals around 50 years of age. They followed them for years, and they looked at what they ate and what they did and, what, and looked at their habits. And what they found was that people who, who, who had about five of these habits, okay, were disease-free in 10 years. So between 50 and 60 years of age, they remained disease-free if they had five of these habits. Now, we have the microphone. Can someone read these for us? These five habits, or, or these habits that are up there. Non-smoking. Non-smoking, hold on, hold on. Non-smoking. I don't know if there's anybody here who smokes. I don't know if there's anybody here who's around a smoker. If you don't smoke, don't start. And if you smoke, you need to stop. Okay, next one. No alcohol. No alcohol. I don't know how many of you here drink alcohol. I'm just saying. If you don't drink, don't start. And if you drink, get off of it. All right, next one. Whole foods. Whole foods. I don't know how many of you eat around here. But once more, the ultra-processed foods, if you're going to do any of that, that will be the small part of your diet. Whole foods, that should be the big part of your diet. Okay, next one. Maintain a healthy weight. Maintain a healthy weight. Now, let me tell you this. This one is a caveat. How wide are the gates to heaven? Narrow. They're narrow, huh? But let me tell you, they're large enough 
to hold the most obese individual on the planet. Amen. Your weight is not a criterion for entering heaven. All right? Your weight is not... I have read the whole Bible. I have not found that. But what I did find was that the glutton doesn't go to heaven. Okay? So it's not your weight, that's what's seen on the outside, but rather, who is your God? If food is your God and your belly is your God, the Bible says you don't need God because you already have one. Are you getting what I'm saying? All right? So I'm not telling you don't be concerned about your weight, but let me say this. It is not your weight that's the issue. All right? The issue about getting to heaven has nothing to do with your weight. It has to do with who you serve and your relationship with him. All right, next one. Exercise 30 plus minutes per day. Okay. Do you get that? That's, that's pretty simple. Pretty simple. And by the way, uh, the more vigorous you're able to do that exercise, the better the benefit, the greater the benefit. Okay? So... If you can only start off with a stroll, do that. Yes, ma'am. Do they have to be continuous 30 minutes? No, that's the other thing. You can do a bit and a bit and a bit and a bit. Okay. Is that something? I'm going to show you some, some other research uh, on one of the other days looking at how many minutes or how many seconds of exercise can make a difference. Okay, so we'll get to that. Yes, ma'am. So go ahead. Seven hours of sleep. Seven hours of sleep. Let me tell you, I... <laughs> Uh, by nature and by profession, sleep evades me, right? I have to constantly uh, be uh, on guard that God provides his beloved sleep and rest, okay? So uh, if I'm beloved of God, I have to have rest and God gives. I have no problem falling asleep. I have no problem staying asleep. The problem that I have is going to sleep. Anybody here like that? Okay. But you know, I have, I have uh, in, in groups all around the world, I have asked them to help me with this, to look at the literature and see if they can find anything that says that four or five hours of sleep a night is actually beneficial for some people. I've been doing this for almost 40 years, asking people to find, and no one has, has given me any of that information. Do you know why? Because it is not beneficial, right? It is not beneficial. Six to eight hours of sleep. All right? Let me tell you a little bit about diabetes. People who sleep less than six hours of sleep a night doubles their risk of diabetes. Doubles their risk of having type 2 diabetes. But let me tell you the other side of it. So some would say if a little is good, then a lot is better. Not true here. Because if you sleep nine hours or more a night, your risk of type 2 diabetes triples, okay? So, <laughs> I tell you, if you look at the research, all over the world, different laboratories, different clinical groups, all around, it's around seven to eight hours of sleep, okay? That's the, that's the optimal. And usually, if we do some of those hours before midnight, we get extra special benefit, okay? Good, so, choose five. Stay alive. <laughs> okay? Choose five of these. 
Be thankful. This one is not included, but other research have shown that, that just being thankful to God and making a list every night of things that you can be thankful for actually not only improves the quality of your life, but also the quantity of your life. Okay? And choose five or more of these if you don't have them on your list today. Okay? Can I get an amen with that? Amen. All right. So that should be easy enough. Let's move on now to what we were doing yesterday and kind of uh, get into the diabetes issue. So, so remember, the original intention of God is shalom. He wants us to have everything that is good. And he wants us to have it now, what we can, and he wants us to have this for eternity. So if we review, we have some questions, and I want you to turn to your neighbor, and you answer these questions. You have 30 seconds. This is a a quick quiz. You remember those when you were in school, right? Quick quiz. All right. So let's go. Talk to the person next to you. First question. Was there a time when there were no diseases, including chronic degenerative diseases? When was that? What happened? And what happened after that? Okay. See, that was easy. That was fast. So here, here are the answers. Okay? The answer is absolutely yes. When was that? In Eden. Uh, any answer that sounds like Eden is a good one. All right? So if you say uh, at creation or something like that. Okay? So you get a point for that one. I'm a teacher. What can I say? <laughs> All right? Uh, when, so what happened? Sin. And if you analyze it, which we don't have time to do, because we have, we have a short time here, we would go through what it is that Eve actually went through and what Adam went through. That takes about three hours of talking. Uh, but anyway, but what it is that they went their own way and they missed the mark that God had for them. Okay, there's something that fell. I don't know what it is, but... Um, ah, okay, you dropped it. <laughs> Good. Uh, all right, so they went their own way. She thought she was, she, she thought she was making a good decision, Right? Remember, she hadn't sinned up until that point, so she had a perfect intellect, right? But she made a wrong choice. She went her own way. She did not go God's way. She did not follow what the mark that God had in mind for her and for the world, and the rest is history. Okay, so what happened after that? Deterioration, decay, disease, and ultimately death. And we have all these diseases to prove it. We have... Uh, the major causes of death in the world, heart disease, hypertension, stroke, diabetes, cancer, dementia, uh, chronic obstructive lung disease, and of course, other people. Cain and Abel. Other people take your life, right? Vectors, environment, invisible infectious agents. You know, in the, in the pandemic of um, 1918, at that time, they did not know what a virus was. I don't know if you guys know that. They didn't even know what a virus was. So the first vaccine that they made against the 1918 flu pandemic, they made against the bacterium called influenza. And of course, that, vi that, uh, that virus, sorry, that uh, vaccine didn't work. It wasn't until five or six years later that they discovered that it was a virus, but they had no idea what a virus was before. Okay, so very interesting uh, tidbit there. Most of the things that, that infect us these days, we can't see. They're invisible. 
And I have a whole presentation that I, I, I give uh, to medical people about the invisible things that affect us. And I'm not talking only about infectious agents. They're demons in the world. That's what the Bible says. They're real and they affect us too. Okay? All right, next. So here's this. This is the sinister part. <laughs> sin kills. Sin is equal to original sin plus your sin plus my sin. It's all our sins, right? Your sins and my sins also kill. Okay? But get this. Not all your diseases come from your own sin. Some of them come from my sin. If I took out a, a pistol that's loaded and I aim at you and I pull the trigger, it's my sin, right? I'm committing murder. But guess who's affected? You are, right? So other people can kill you. Other people's sins can kill you. The environment, things in the environment, your circumstances can kill you, right? So it's not all because of your sins, and that's, a, that's an important issue. However, we need to understand that the ultimate cause of disease is sin. The sin that exists in the world is the ultimate cause of disease, and this ultimate issue produces all of these diseases and many more because sin has affected every ology that we know and has even caused us to, in, to, to make up a new one, okay? In the Garden of Eden, there was no such thing as pathology. Everything else was good. Pathology is the study of, the scientific study of disease. That did not, we didn't need to have that until there were diseases, right? And this pathology involves several different things. It involves the cause or the etiology of of, uh, of disease. It involves um, the development of the disease, which we call pathogenesis. Patho for pathology and genesis means origin. So the origin of the disease. And it also involves the morphological changes, the changes in, in the structure of what goes on. Structure in the body, structure uh, within the cells, okay, and also the function, which we would call sequelae or in some circumstances, just we call the consequences. So you have this disease and you have this that uh, follows it because of that change and you have to live with something else, okay? You have a stroke and then you're paralyzed. So the stroke is what caused the paralysis and the paralysis is a sequela of the stroke, okay? So that's a little bit of terminology and that's the issue of pathology. So now, how do we deal with this? Now, I'm gonna give you a framework uh, for looking at things and we will use that framework for every one of the diseases that we will study for the rest of the week, starting today with diabetes, okay? So there's a simple model. It's called the risk disease model, okay? A, B, and C are called risk factors, okay? So we have risk factors. They increase our risk or decrease our risk, and we end up with sickness because of if we have these risk factors, okay? So for instance, a heart attack, one risk factor is our age. The older we are, the more likely we are to have a heart attack, right? Can we change that risk factor? Can we change our age? No, we can't change our chronological age. But we can change our physiologic age, depending on how we live. How we live can, can modify that. So somebody who is 60 years of age chronologically may actually be functioning like a 35-year-old. Okay? So we can change that. Uh, usually we say gender. But in today's day, the polarization, I'm not going to go there. So <laughs> some habits like cigarette smoking, 
right? That's a risk factor for heart disease. Can we change that one? The answer is yes. Okay? So when we look at heart disease, which we will look at later on, we'll see that there are modifiable risk factors and there are some that it's more difficult to, uh, to, to deal with. But the modifiable risk factors are things that we can do, that we can make a change with, and those things actually can be beneficial because when we make those changes, we get a result that is beneficial uh, to us. Okay? So A, B, and C are risk factors. When they are present, uh, they would look at causing sickness, okay? We're dealing with roots, okay? What is the cause of things? Now, remember, we talked about the ultimate cause, but there are some things that are more proximal, things that are closer. So, we look at this. Uh, I, I like this, this plant, uh, these roots thing, you know, it looks real cool. Um, so, what do you do? You avoid the risk. You avoid the roots. You can stop the roots, or you can counteract the roots, and the way I have that diagrammatically is like this. So, you have risk factor A, you can avoid it, okay? If you can avoid it, wonderful. That means that you're not going to have that risk factor uh, to add to the others to cause you to have a disease. Does that sound okay? So there are some things you might be able to avoid. The second one, B, I have this, you can eliminate it, okay? Uh, so it's not just avoid it, you, you, you get rid of it altogether, okay? If that's the case, wonderful, right? Uh, there are some other things like uh, that you can block. In other words, you have the risk factor, but you have something else that counteracts it, you know, stands in between so that the risk factor doesn't cause you to have a problem, all right? So these are three things that we can do uh, to prevent disease and, as you will see later on, ways that we can treat disease. However, there is a problem. You see, there's nothing that works 100%, so that even though we might be able to avoid some things, we, we can't avoid every risk factor. And even though we can prevent some things, we can't prevent everything. And even though we might be able to have blockers, some of these blockers have holes, okay? So a little bit gets through. So it's, it's, it's not 100%. It's a, it's a partial system. And because it's a partial system, we also need to look at some of the other things that are going on. We don't know everything. So there might be other risk factors that we didn't know about that might be causing something, and we're thinking we're doing really well because we're doing the things that we do know. Are you following me? So when someone ends up with an illness, please be very, very, very circumspect. Do not say it's because they were doing that 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 happened. We may not know. We may not know. The Bible's instruction is real simple. Judge not. Okay? Don't condemn people for what you're seeing because you don't know. You're not walking in their shoes. There are factors that are unknown. But even the medical profession has not dealt with the whole thing. But you and I, we know better. Okay? And the reason is because we understand that we live in a sinful world. And because we live in a sinful world, there will be sickness, there will be disease, there will be death. There will be suffering here because we live in a sinful world. So, so this, this sin issue bathes everything. Everything. I'm, I'm just saying this, and you're sitting there and you're saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It bathes everything. 
So when we're talking about curing people of disease and helping people with disease, that has to be in the mind of the person who is suggesting what to do. That this is a factor that we must take into account. The way some doctors say it in, in, in the group of physicians that, uh, that we have this organization called AMEN, which is the Adventist uh, Evangelism, Medical Evangelism Network. Uh, <laughs> if you don't offer people the antidote for sin, we're not doing a complete job. Okay? So, we have to, to look at this whole thing and I, I would say in a more holistic way, right? We have sin in the world. I have my sin, okay? These things increase my risk, and I end up with disease. But even if I could take care of all of my risk because of my sin, there is still sin in the world. Look, I have known some uh, health reformers who told the line and they get sick. They told the line. I know some people who live as if there is no tomorrow and they live to 80, 85 years of age. You know, I have so many patients, I had so many patients in the past who would tell me, the first time a guy told me this was a, a veteran. He said he was like in his 60s and he was... Proverbially, he was sick as a dog, okay? This guy, he had all these things going wrong. And he said to me, Doc, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. And I thought, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting insight. I wanted to write it down and put his name next to it, but I heard it so many times afterwards. It's amazing. If I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. When does the rest of your life start? Right now. Please, take better care of yourself. Because there are lots of different things that can happen, and these are the things that uh, cause death in the world. There's a whole list. Uh, let's see, maybe we can have somebody from this side read uh, what that list is, as you see on your screen. Let's get the salt and water people involved. If you weren't here yesterday, it's an inside joke. Get, yeah. Cardiovascular disease. Cardiovascular disease. That means heart and blood vessel disease. Neoplasms. That means all of those cancer stuff. Chronic. Chronic respiratory disease. That means all of the lung diseases associated with cigarette smoking, with re related to uh, air pollution, asthma, all of those things. Respiratory infections and tuberculosis. That means TB, right, and pneumonias. Mm -hmm. Neurological disorders. That includes strokes, right, and things that cause you not to be able to function well, right? Yes, and kidney disease. Kidney diseases, that's, uh, of course... The kidneys, right? Uh, our ability to, to excrete and to clean the blood. Digestive diseases. That's everything that starts from the mouth all the way down to the anus, right? Next. Maternal and 
neonatal disorders. That is mom and child. These are the things, thank you very much, these are the things that cause havoc in the world. It goes everywhere from womb to tomb. These are the diseases that take us out. Okay? And many people for years had thought, okay, these things, we need to be able to solve the problem, we need to, to, to deal with them in a, in a physical way. But here is something else that was not initially understood. When you compare the death of people from uh, acute heart attacks, okay, that's the second line in red, acute heart attacks, we find that low education causes death at the same rate. Low education. If we look at strokes, we find that low social support causes more death than strokes. If we look at lung cancer, we find that racial segregation is about the same as a cause of death. If we, and by racial segregation, we talk about tribalism and all those other isms that separate people. If we look at chronic lower respiratory diseases, we find that income inequity causes a greater amount of death and suffering than that. Are you following what I'm saying? So there are issues in the social realm that also cause pain, suffering, and death. So when we think that we know that this person isn't doing this physically, they're not exercising, or they're not eating right, or whatever, you have to take into account, you have to filter that through who the person is. Where they're living. You know, we find in the United States of America, there are still children who go to bed at night hungry in this country. The issue of food insecurity. People who are eating today and they don't have any idea as to where their next meal is going to come from in this country. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Now, I'm not suggesting that we necessarily have to get on the bandwagon to, you know, parade the inequities that we find in the world. But in our little corner and in our big corners where we have influence, we might be able to influence this in a positive way. And we should, because God calls us to relieve suffering. This is what Jesus came when he came. He talked about it from Isaiah, right? To loose the bands of oppression, right? To, to, to set the captives free. And he wasn't talking just metaphorically. So here are some of the things that we find as social determinants of health. Where you live, where you worship, where you play, have a huge effect on how long you're going to live and how well you're going to live. There was one study, a big study done in Canada. And what they found was that people who lived, I mean, they, they, it was very well done. They drew circles around factories. And they 
set up a model that they could predict the life expectancy depending on how far away from the factory you live. Some people at the University of Washington in Seattle did some very interesting research. They showed that by your zip code in the United States, they can tell what your life expectancy really would be like. Some others did studies looking at how far is the epicenter of your neighborhood from the closest grocery store. And that also was a predictor of your longevity. The further you were away from a grocery store that sells produce, fresh produce, the shorter your lifespan. As simple as that. Isn't that something? Now, of course, that doesn't work if you're living in the country and you don't have a grocery store and you're growing your own food. <laughs> and that's what most of you probably do, all right? Which is wonderful. You don't have that uh, demographic to have to deal with. But this is a reality here in the United States and around the world. I was part of a, a kind of dissemination of that, of that idea. Uh, in every major country where this has been studied, in the United States, we can do it by zip code, and others, they have different ways of characterizing neighborhoods and so on, uh, the electoral uh, districts and things like that. Same issue, same issue. There are some neighborhoods that don't live there, okay? Uh, don't live there. Okay, and how do these things play out? Now, this is an interesting uh, uh, situation, how you address these. There are some things that are far away from us, we think, but they influence what's happening close to us. So, for instance, the environment, the physical, political, economic, and sociocultural environment, they play a part. If in your culture, in your area, if in your environment, it is normal to, when you get home in the afternoon or the evening, you toss a few beers down, and if on the weekends uh, you party all night and uh, you grow your own marijuana, all right, or whatever, if, if, this is, if this is your lifestyle and this is the culture and the environment in which you grow up, this will become what you will call normal. And people tend to do what is normal for them. Are you following me? But that normalcy can cause problems. Because some of those things that are normal may not be healthy, may not be good, may not be, right? You know, Paul says that uh, everything uh, might be permitted, but not everything is efficacious. It's not everything that we are able to do, we should do, okay? So, then we have the things that are midstream. So we have stress and anxiety and depression. Anybody knows what those things are? <laughs> stress, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, occupation issues, technology, even the technology. I mean, we, we, could, we could spend a, a, actually a whole, a whole week just talking about the effect of social media on, on people's health today. And, uh, and social inequity. All of these things affect individuals and affect their health. And then we go something more close to where we are, downstream. It affects our nutrition, it affects our activities, it affects, the, it affects drugs that we have access to or that we don't have access to. Uh, it includes smoking and alcohol, it, it, overexposure to things and underexposure to certain things, right? 
overexposure to things that might be bad or harmful and underexposure to things that are helpful. But you know, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have, we have a wealth of, of information and a wealth of, of support for being able to overcome some of these things. Right? I, I, uh, I, I had to give a presentation once to an elite group of, of individuals talking about how the, the, the Advent message, of the message that God has given us to share with the world, okay, how it, atta- how it attacks each line on that graph. Each line. There is something of benefit in God's word and in the message that he has given us to share that will attack each of these. One of the big things in, in Seventh-day Adventism, Seventh-day Adventism is education. Isn't that right? I don't know if you guys know the statistic, but within one generation of becoming Seventh-day Adventists, we end up with college graduates. Did you know that? Within one generation. So mom and dad become Seventh-day Adventists, or mom becomes a Seventh-day Adventist, and guess what? The kids, they finish academy and they go to college. <laughs> this, is, this is part of... There is no other group that has that rate of, uh, of improvement in educational benefit in the United States. None others. When they compared uh, Seventh-day Adventist children going to Junior Academy and Academy compared to all other groups in the United States, Seventh-day Adventists going to academies and junior academies outscored all of the others. You, you didn't know that, did you? And we complain about our schools. Isn't that right? And we say they're expensive. And let me tell you, they're not perfect. They're not perfect. But they outscore every other one. So much so that an independent filmmaker, he was so impressed, he made a film out of this. And it showed it on PBS. Um, if you want your kids to excel, become an Adventist or send them to an Adventist school. That's what he was saying. <laughs> right? With all of the things that don't go well in Seventh-day Adventist schools. Imagine you can make that statement. Yes, so there are issues, but we know this. The planet is in decay. And as the society deteriorates, so does the individual's overall health. Society is decaying, we're decaying along with it, right? But the original intention of God was shalom. His intention today still is shalom. But don't make the mistake, not all suffering is because of your own fault or not all suffering is because of your lifestyle. Here's something that you probably did not know. You probably didn't know that babies, while they're in the womb, are subject to the environment in which they are living. And there are things that mom does, doesn't do, things that she inhales, she doesn't inhale, things that she thinks and doesn't think. All of those affect the soup in her body. And that soup essentially bathes the baby and affects how that baby is going to be as it grows. Now, you know, what's really interesting, to me anyway, 
is that when those thoughts were being first discussed in some little red books, people thought this was all hogwash. It was all hogwash. Today, it is mainstream science. But it was hogwash when it was first discussed. The environmental challenges of the mother, obesity, undernutrition, diabetes, stress, poor physical activity, nicotine, alcohol, all of these things affect the mom and they affect how that baby is going to grow in the womb and it's going to affect what's going to happen years into the future. I remember the first time I read uh, the study, this was about 25 years ago, I read the study that there's a link between birth weight, okay, hear this one, birth weight, and the development of diabetes 43 years later. Did you guys hear what I said? Birth weight and the development of type 2 diabetes 43 years later. This was a, a, a Chinese study. They, kept, they, had, they had data to be able to back that up. And then everybody else started to study the same thing. And lo and behold, it's the truth. Okay? So a whole, a whole uh, generation was subject to things that we did not know was affecting us. But if we had listened to what we had been told before, we would be spared some of that suffering. We will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Yes, ma'am. It's actually a U-shaped curve. The lower the, the birth weight and the higher the birth weight. Both of them. Okay? And it's not just diabetes, as I will show you. It works with high blood pressure. It works with uh, heart disease, etc. Okay? Both of them. Twins. Do twins have... Oh, <laughs> so you're concerned about that. <laughs> Our gentleman in front says, what about twins? How does it affect twins? Uh, the twin studies actually have not shown the same thing, except when you have uh, non-identical twins and you have a runt, and uh, so you have a bigger baby and a small baby. Identical. You're identical twins and you're about the same birth weight. Yeah, yeah. all right, so that should... He's happy. You should see his smile. <laughs> ah, yeah, but you know, we, we have the, the, the runt issue, okay? It doesn't mean that the runt um, is not going to have a full life, but uh, that child has catching up to do, all right? Okay. Yes, ma'am. So what is considered a low birth weight and what is considered a high birth weight? Okay. A high birth weight in, in pounds, if it's nine pounds or, or or more, we call that a high birth weight, and that increases the risk of type 2 diabetes in the offspring, in the child, and it increases the risk of type 2 diabetes in the mom. Okay, so she may, she may end up with it later on in, in life, right? Uh, and if it's uh, four and a half pounds or less, that's low birth weight, okay? Okay, so, so first, we saw this, this is the epidemiology. This is where we see, okay, this is associated with that. And now we have, in addition, we have now the scientific basis. I'm not gonna go through all the things on this slide. What we have is, this is the gene that's being turned on, this is the one that's being turned off, this is the one that's expressing itself 
because of the environment in which that child, that fetus is growing. Okay? And it doesn't stop there. The first 1,000 days of life are crucial in what's going to happen to that person over time. And most parents are ignorant of this. Okay? And, and, and again, I wasn't planning to say this, but I'm going to say this. When, when you have, when you have a, 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 a young woman who is not really ready for motherhood, but who is sexually active and becomes pregnant, and by the way, that term, becoming pregnant, is a, is a misnomer, all right? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't become pregnant, do I? I, yeah, I wouldn't, all right? You don't, you don't become pregnant by accident. That's, that's, not, that's not good language, right? There are certain things that you do, right? And there are some who, who say that the cure for all of this is aspirin. Have you heard that one? Aspirin. You know that little small baby aspirin between the knees? You hold it there, okay? They say that works like a charm. That's what they say, okay? <laughs> all right. But here, here's the point. Here's the point. A young woman and her husband who are deciding to start a family, what happens when they're trying to start a family? Well, what they do is they, they begin to create the nest. She is happy. He is happy. They're waiting. They're, they're waiting to hear the good news that a baby is on the way. They're rejoicing. She's taking care of what she needs to take care of. He is taking care of what he needs to take care of. Everything is going supposedly well. The emotional environment that that baby is going to grow in is quite different from the young woman who is not prepared to start a family and who may be experiencing some guilt or not guilt, but now she's concerned and she misses her period. We're among adults here. She misses her period. And what's going through her mind? Uh-oh. Uh oh now she's worried, okay? I'm not even going to go the route of, of even trying to decide whether she's going to decide whether she's going to abort or not. Let's not go there. She says, I'm going to have the baby, right? But do you think she's prepared? No. All during the time, she's worried. She's worried about what her consort is going to say. He might say, get rid of that child. He might say, I'm out of here. And that baby is growing in an environment that is almost hostile for its normal development. If only we would follow God's word more closely, it would save us from a lot of suffering. It will not eliminate everything. Because Jesus himself said, in this world, in this life, you will have suffering. There are some people who look on the outside and they see people who are fat. Yeah, that's the word, fat. See, you're too fat. You're going to get diabetes. Well, I have good news for you. Diabetes is now becoming an equal opportunity offender. Okay? There are many people who are skinny or slender and they develop diabetes as well. Because the issue is not just the fat. Okay? And let me kind of break this down to you. You see, most of the fat that we see is the fat that's under the skin and on the outside. 
right? We call that subcutaneous fat. This has very little impact on whether you develop diabetes or not, subcutaneous fat. We also see in women, they have a particular shape of fat, right? We call this the gynoid shape or the pear shape. The top is slender and then they enlarge a little bit lower down, okay? This very little effect on the development of type 2 diabetes. The apple shape, we're back to that apple again, <laughs> but the apple shape, where it's mainly central fat, okay, this is a significant problem, the central fat. But it's not just central fat. Because if you have central fat, but it's all in the so-called love handles or the tire, you know, that is not the problem. It's what's going on on the inside around your visceral organs. That is what's going on around the, around the stomach, what's going, around, what's going on in the pancreas, and what's going on in the liver. And the one that has taken the prize, it's a movie prize, it's a bad prize, is the liver. The fat that's deposited in your liver is the most dangerous fat when it comes to the development of type 2 diabetes. So someone can have liver fat, and on the outside, sir, can I use you as an experiment? Can you come forward? Anyone looking at this gentleman would think, not a problem. Isn't that right? Have you ever been used as a model before? <laughs> Thank you, you're a good sport. Now, but you see, we can't see what's going on inside of his liver, but we can test that to see what's going on inside of his liver. If he has fatty liver disease, okay, which by the way is reversible, he would have increased risk of type 2 diabetes. I don't wish it on you, all right? But there are people who have this profile and they develop type 2 diabetes. And there are some people with this profile as well, skinny, and they don't develop type 2 diabetes, they develop type 1 diabetes. And I'll talk about that in a sec. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. They develop around 45 to 50 years of age, they develop what looks like type 2 diabetes, but they don't respond in the same way to the medications that doctors usually give, that we usually give to people with type 2 diabetes. It will last for about a year or so, and then they have to be on insulin. These people have a whole other pathology. They have type 1 diabetes that has been delayed for 45 years. Okay? We call that LADA, latent or late onset adult, uh, uh, late onset diabetes of the adult. Okay? So they actually are going to need insulin. Uh, they don't respond to just changes in their lifestyle. Right? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Alzheimer's disease has been called type 3 diabetes because of the problem associated with what we call insulin resistance. That is, the body does not respond in the normal way that it should to insulin. You need more and more insulin in order to do what the body needs. I, I think that's a bad characterization, by the way. The doctors who, who said that, um, I mean, they, they were trying to make a metaphor, but it's, it's, it's not, a, not, not a good thing. Anyway, to cut a long story short, both of them involve inflammation, and that is more likely uh, to be the root 
of the linkage between uh, Alzheimer's disease and other chronic degenerative diseases, right? Alzheimer's disease, am I going to talk about Alzheimer's here? I think so. I think I'm going to do that on Thursday, if I can remember, yeah. Uh, <laughs> are we talking about Alzheimer's? Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they don't want you to talk. <laughs> they turned you off. <laughs> Yes, being sedentary doubles the risk of normal weight di diabetes. Yes. Study that normal weight obesity, forty percent of college students who have normal weight uh, actually are designated as normal weight obese because of the ratio of lean muscle to body fat, and they're at risk for thirty different chronic diseases. I don't know about all these other factors, but one of them is inactivity. Yes, ultra processed foods and inactivity; these are like poisons to our metabolic system, poisons. So if you're sitting a lot in front of a computer screen or sitting in class or whatever it is, you're not doing anything, and then uh, you're eating junk food, right? it just it increases your risk for a plethora of chronic diseases. And many college students today, that's what it's like, right? And then some of them binge on the weekend with, and the, well, you know, it's kind of, it's a sad situation, but we should not just throw up our hands. We really need to help to educate those individuals. I, 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 no, I, I, I don't want to deviate. I have another story from another universe, from a university, but um, uh, maybe I'll tell it another time. So here's the thing. We can diagnose uh, diabetes in multiple ways. Uh, we have some normal levels here. I'm not going to read them off, but you go from normal to pre-diabetes to diabetes. And the issue is that this process can be reversible. It doesn't mean that it's always reversible, but it means that it can be reversible in some situations. And this was known even before we knew all about diabetes. Back in 1917, John Harvey Kellogg wrote a book called The New Method in Diabetes. This was before insulin was even discovered, okay? And much of what we, we do today in lifestyle intervention, with some, with some modifications, is what the Seventh-day Adventists back in Battle Creek were doing with people who developed diabetes uh, back then. It is not new, okay? Today, however, we know more about how this thing works, and the central player is the liver. The central player is the liver. What is going on with that liver? We don't talk enough about liver and liver disease and how the liver, you know, whoever it is named it in English, liver, they actually named it quite well. We can't live without it. No, it's the liver, right? Uh, but you see, this, this is a central processing unit for us, for our metabolism. And whether or not we have physical exercise or we overeat, this affects certain things for what is going to be going on in the liver and the amount of fat that's accumulated in the liver. When we, when we get unnatural amounts of fructose, that is fructose not found in the fruits and vegetables as it naturally should be, when we use processed foods and excess refined sugars, these all are like poisons to the liver, they're toxic to the liver, and they cause the liver to produce more fat. And this fat in the liver is a culprit 
in the development of type 2 diabetes. It's not the only thing that's going on, but it is part of the whole process. And the thing is, it is something that we don't have to do. We don't have to go there. We don't have to have all the high fructose uh, corn syrup, and we don't have to have things like that. We don't have to have excess sugar, you know. You know, sometimes people, you know, uh, Ellen White talked about the issue of meat, and she talked about the issue of sugar. Anybody read anything that she said about that? She said that, that sugar is worse than meat, right? And, <laughs> but I like apple pie. Use less sugar in the apple pie, right? <laughs> but, but you see, we, we, would, we would like to massage that a little bit, okay? If we, can, we, if we can reduce the whole thing to just one thing, okay, uh, we'd all be very happy. But it's not just one thing. It's a whole symphony of things that we call life. And we ought to live a balanced healthful life. And the people who are able to do that, they tend to live longer because they reduce risk. The lifestyle approach that we use does not immunize you against disease. What it does is it reduces your risk of getting those diseases. Right? We are appointed once to die and then the resurrection. Exercise, okay, part of a balanced position. And this, I think we're going to have to stop after this slide. This is part of the issue. We have energy expenditure issues. If we don't exercise, we don't expend enough energy. If we eat too much, if we overeat, we have a problem. Especially if the composition of the foods, we have a lot of processed foods, that's a problem. The chemicals in the environment, that's a problem. The things that, uh, that are happening inside our gut, those bacteria in our gut, the microbiome, they affect things. As a matter of fact, even how we think for our internal environment, that affects things. If we're anxious or we're, we're uh, uh, sleep deprived, etc., all of these things affect our internal environment. And these things, along with the genes that we have that uh, make us more prone to have excess fat accumulation. And again, the excess fat accumulation that counts the most is the excess fat accumulation that you do not see, the one that's inside the body, all right? And this causes a dysfunction of the pancreas, the cells in the pancreas that produce the insulin. That combination is what sets the stage for diabetes. And I call this a metabolic soup. So part of our job is to make good soup. Good metabolic soup. By the things that we do, the things that we leave off, the way we approach even how we live, whether we're going to do this I'll do this if it kills me. Chances are it will. God has given us instructions and he has told us what is good for us. He says, if you know these things, 
happy are ye when you do good. And he even gives us the power to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't it a wonderful God that we serve? Can we stand and have a prayer and thank him for that? Maybe we should ask someone to offer prayer. Uh, someone from the, from the back. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the creation of the human body. We believe that you are the soul doctor and the physical doctor and the mental doctor. Create within us a clean heart. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.